If you want to get your Bibles out a while as the ushers finish up and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 1. many hunters here that got buck this week? I hate you. <laughs> with, with Christian love, of course. <laughs> uh, some of you have asked. Yeah, I did go out this year, first time in six years. My son was back in the area, and we had an opportunity to go out. And it, was, it was fun, but fruitless. Uh, unless you just like being outdoors, and then it was fun. All right, Luke chapter 1, talking today about the coming of the King of Kings. Let me ask you to think through this question. As you think back in your life, since you've been a Christian, if you are a believer, remember a time or two or maybe a number of times where God has asked you to do, do something really, really hard. And I don't mean in a spooky sort of way, you know, voices booming from heaven, but just the way things unfolded, the way your heart was drawn to something or someone, the way circumstances unfolded, that you became convicted beyond a shadow of a doubt that God wanted you to do something that was pretty hard. And you weren't sure you could do it. You're not sure you had the courage. You're not sure you had the strength. Not even sure if you had the desire to do what God was asking. Now imagine, (laughs) and let me ask you young ladies, imagine you were 12, 13, 14 years old, and God asked you to bear a child. Mm-hmm. I, wait a minute, I'm, I'm, I'm not even out of high school yet. I haven't gone to college yet. I haven't seen the world. I haven't accomplished some things I'd like to accomplish. And you want me to start a family? Oh, yeah, and by the way, it's going to be done without a man. What? Three years ago, there was a woman in Duluth, Minnesota. She's a runner, and she had just uh, finished running nine miles. She was training for a half marathon. Three, 33-year-old wife, mother of two, and um, after running all these miles, she started to have pain in her back, and, man, it was hurting, and finally, she, it was so severe, she went to the hospital and took her in the ER, and the nurse is checking her over, and, and she explained she had been running, and, and, and her said, ma'am, your back pain is not from running. I detect a fetal heartbeat. You're going to have a baby. This woman says, what? I, I, I can't be having a baby. I, I haven't gained any weight. I, I haven't missed any cycles. And my, wife, or my husband has had a vasectomy. 
Now those of you who are the suspicious sort, but just so you know, 15 to 20 vasectomies don't take out of 10,000. And then they said, well, you are going to have a baby. And within literally minutes, she gave birth to a six-pound, six-ounce little girl that she and her husband decided to name Miracle. Mira for short. True story. That's, that's an unexpected birth. That's nothing like the kind of birth we're going to read about here this morning. Let me pray for us, and then let's read these amazing verses. Awe. That is all to me that can describe sitting in front of this message that a young woman has a baby apart from male participation. And wonder. Many questions as well. Things like why? What about this and what about that? And yet you had purpose in it all. And we look back, those of us who know Christ, we look back this season of the year and just sit and wonder and marvel at what you've done. We understand that there are many around us who think it's quaint and cute to speak about a baby born in difficult circumstances, not an ideal start in life, but really don't grasp the import of what took place in a little town south of Jerusalem so long ago. And I pray for the Holy Spirit to open up both our minds and our hearts this morning in ways that will refresh our appreciation of a virgin birth. And that it's not just part of the narrative, but that it is significant. That this, this thread of the gospel that begins in Genesis 3.15 and runs throughout the prophets in the Old Testament and continues on into the New Testament, that on that thread hangs the virgin birth for a very important reason. And we pray that you would this morning muzzle and bind the enemy and instead unleash the Holy Spirit. I pray that his communication to us might be um, remembered and enrich our understanding of the gospel and that my words be forgotten, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Luke chapter 1, beginning of verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. 
you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I'm, I'm a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. And people used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of God will never fail. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. Let's talk first about this astonishing child. Then we'll get to the astonishing birth. And then I want to link that finally to the astonishing new birth. Number of things the angel tells Mary about this child that she's going to have. Just like he did with Zachariah and Elizabeth last week, he, he tells them what they are to name the child. You name him John. You name this one Jesus. Now, we have to be careful. We don't think about Jesus as a magical name, and he's the only person that was named that. In fact, a lot of people would have been named Jesus uh, in the Jewish community. It was the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew, word, Hebrew name Joshua. A lot of people, a lot of boys named Joshua. But it was significant and had to be a little hint to Mary that he's going to have a very, very special mission because Joshua and Jesus means God saves. The angel said he's going to be great, he's going to be holy, and he's, he's going to be called Son of the Most High. Now, a couple of things interesting with that. Obviously, people, the Bible speaks about people like you and I being holy. In fact, in a number of occasions, uh, God says, I want you to be holy because I am holy. Peter repeats that Old Testament quote uh, in chapter 1, verses uh, 15 and 16. Be holy because I am holy. So that wouldn't have necessarily been a tip-off to Mary that this baby was actually going to be divine, actually, uh, actually God incarnate. But when, when the angel said great, that might have been a little tip-off because if you go back to the Old Testament, the only time the word great is used in relationship to a, a person, if it stands by itself, in other words, no adjectives, no prepositional phrases attached to it, it always refers to God. Last week, when the angel said to Zechariah, talked about John, he said, he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. And now to Mary, he simply says, Jesus will be very great. And he also says he's going to, he's, his appointment or his assignment is going to be as a, an eternal king who will rule from the throne of his father, uh, David, over Israel forever. Now, if you're a Gentile like me, you're not a Jewish person, you might say, well, how, how does Jesus' rule come into play for me I don't have Jewish blood. My last name isn't Cohen or something like that with Jewish derivatives. Well, how, will Jesus rule over me? I mean, the picture here is a forever rule, so this clearly goes beyond the millennium into eternity. Um, let me take you to Galatians 6, 16. Uh, you don't need to look it up. And here's what it says. At the end of the book of Galatians, Paul is giving a blessing to the Galatian Christians. 
and he says something about the Israel of God. Now, you're not going to read that in the NLT. They use simply the people of God. But they'll have an asterisk behind that phrase, and you'll see in the footnote, the Greek says literally, literally the Israel of God. And you see something took place during the life of Jesus or in the after uh, Jesus' ministry here on earth, and that was that there was a shift in God's focus from Israel as the people of God to the church as the people of God. Now, don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean that God doesn't still have a plan for Israel nationally. Um, he does. But when you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, it becomes evident that, as Paul says, who was probably the the Jew of Jews in his day, a very devout Pharisee, uh, Jewish Pharisee. Even he says in nine, I think it's Romans 9 verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And his point is, just because you have a Jewish name or just because you had a Jewish parent doesn't mean you are Jewish in the way that God intended Jews to be, meaning faithful servants of the living God. And so now in the aftermath of the missionary movement after Jesus goes back to heaven and his apostles begin to fan out all over the Middle East, spreading the good news of Jesus Christ, the vast majority of people that are coming to Jesus after the first uh, few years are not Jewish people. They're, they're Gentiles. And so when you hear that there is this Messiah who is going to rule over, the, over all Israel, it's not just Jewish people. It's Jews and Gentiles alike. It's the people who uh, who serve the living God. Now, there's just a few background things on this uh, child and this astonishing child. Let's talk about the birth. Now, again, I, I try to imagine, I'm not a woman, so I don't imagine real well, but I try to imagine being a woman and having the angel say the things to me that Gabriel said to, to Mary. And most significant, when he greets her, he says, you are favored by God, and then he repeats that in verse 30. You are favored by God. Now, the temptation when we read that is to think Mary must have been an amazing woman, that she's just this really good person. She's, she's obedient to her parents. She does whatever they want. And she looks out for her younger brothers and sisters if she has any. Uh, she's a hard worker out in the fields. She, she's just a great woman. And she has her devotions like she should, and, and she's generous with people in need in the village. That's our temptation. But the word actually used there for favor is grace. In other words, God has chosen you, Mary. We don't know anything about her before this. In fact, she might have been a really difficult child. She might have been a handful. Joseph might been getting himself into something he didn't really understand, but she just might have been a, a problem child. We don't know that. All we know is that God extended his grace, which is a gift that we don't deserve. God extended his grace to her, chose her for this incredible mission. Now, she's, as I said, maybe 12, 13, 14 years old, and we think, man, wow, that's like, that's almost child abuse. We live in a different age and day today. This was typical marrying age in those days, and Mary was not only ready to bear a child, she was already engaged to this man named Joseph. 
Now, really, the engagement in those days would be much, uh, have some features of a modern-day marriage. So, for example, if Joseph would have gone ahead and broken up with Mary after he found out she was pregnant, like he was contemplating doing, it would have been not a broken engagement in their minds. It would have been a divorce. Now, they didn't live together. They didn't sleep together. There were other features uh, of, of of a contemporary engagement that were similar, but it was seen as a much more irrevocable bond than we typically see uh, pre-marriage engagements. So she's, a, she's this very, very young woman, has never been with a man, and God tells her that even though she hasn't been with a man, she's going to give birth to a child. Now, science actually uh, knows something of a virgin birth. They actually have a word for it. It's partho parthenogenesis, that a creature of some sort can give birth without male participation. They've observed this in honeybees and some snakes, sharks. There's a, a, a lizard called a whiptail lizard that does it kind of routinely. But what's interesting, and it's just a... Uh, just a few instances that science has discovered this to occur in, and most, in most cases in captivity. But what's interesting is there's never, ever been any scientific observation of any mammal giving birth without a male participation. In fact, uh, two years ago, the BBC did a report, and they were talking about this whole virgin birth concept and they said, researchers today say that it remains highly unlikely and perhaps even impossible for a virgin mammal to naturally produce viable offspring due to some fundamental aspects of their biology. Now, what's intriguing to me, I, I would think that science would have a, an um, intrinsic desire to be able to reproduce a virgin birth in humanity to dispute that this is something extraordinary and special. And we understand today that medical science has been able to um, separate uh, the act of sexual intimacy from procreation. And so, uh, for example, lesbian couples are being um, uh, impregnated through in vitro uh, fertilization. And so, you know, they've been able to separate this, but it's always requires some, it requires the male contribution. And we're going to get to in a, in a minute why God would go this route. But it's interesting that even with all of the uh, successes and achievements that we've had with science today, this not only has not been reproduced, it doesn't look like it's going to be reproduced. Now, there have been uh, women who have self-reported that they've had a virgin birth, and there might be a number of reasons why that uh, would be uh, advantageous for a woman to say, but never authenticated, never verified by anyone. Now, we have a lot of skeptics both inside the churches and outside the churches when it comes to a virgin birth, although what's interesting is that there are, there are more... Um, uh, average people continually, every year they do a, a survey in America about who believes in the virgin birth, and the numbers are staggeringly high. Now, when you get to the academy, we get into universities and seminaries and so forth, and that can change a little bit. About three years ago, a professor at the University of Gloucestershire in England, um, uh, Andrew Lincoln, wrote a book on the virgin birth. And I watched an interview this week uh, that he did with his publisher, Erdman's, 
And after a half an hour, I shut it off, and I'm just shaking my head. I'm like, I, I don't know what to do with the foolishness sometimes of intelligent people. I mean, I just don't know what to do with it. Some of the things, I'll grant him, there were some things that he was saying that were valid and legitimate, but to a large part, it's just raw, sheer skepticism fundamentally about the Word of God. I mean, he makes his, his biggest argument in the book is, well, Luke and Matthew are the only New Testament writers that mention it. James doesn't mention it, Paul doesn't mention it, John doesn't mention it, Peter doesn't mention it. And therefore, I guess in his mind, he scraps it. So you have to be mentioned, something has to be mentioned at least, I guess, three times for it to be valid. And and I understand he tries to make the argument that not many people in the pews and the churches believe in the virgin birth. And so it's almost as if he's trying to give them um, kind of backup and scholarly support for their unbelief. And yet I read, the, I read the surveys and they continue to say the opposite is true, that most people do believe that Mary actually did give birth to a child apart from a man. So we have this skepticism and doubt piece in there uh, that we understand it's just going to be there. But if you believe the Word of God, then we have to take the Word of God at face value. And... We should understand it's not like this was a kind of a new idea that God's going along saying, I wonder how I'm going to accomplish this. Oh, I know what I'll do. Mary, you're going to have a baby without a man. Let me take you to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, because this was prophesied 700 years earlier. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. I didn't tell you what uh, Dr. Lincoln's argument was to explain how Mary had this baby. He said, well, she and Joseph were just like, you know, a normal couple. They can't handle the hormonal pressure. They give in to lust. And so this was Joseph's baby and Mary's baby. And I always marvel when I um, think how people look at history and import attitudes and morals and how people think today back into ancient past history and assume that things are going to be the same. Not understanding the community's small, it's close, the family pressure is extraordinary, the religious impact is huge, the ability of people to get alone far less likely than it is today. And so that would have been Uh, an enormous challenge for Mary and Joseph to actually pull off what he thinks. All right, Uh, Isaiah 7, verse 14, and here's the line, and and I should tell you, this was a prophecy made by Isaiah during the reign of King Ahaz, and it had something to do with what was taking place in those days. Middle of the verse, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Now, the Hebrew word for virgin here is Alma, and some people have argued it can also mean, and they're right, it can just mean a young woman. No no automatic reference to whether or not she is a virgin, and that part is true, which makes it um, an intriguing way of making a prophecy about something that took place during the reign of King Ahaz, which it did, had to do with the prophet and probably his wife and the king and so forth. 
but also had a far more distant um, prophetic import. And so let me take you to Matthew now, chapter 1, in Matthew's account of the virgin birth, verse 22. All of this occurred, he's talking about... um, Uh, This is right after the conversation that Gabriel has with Joseph to reassure him it's okay for him to go ahead and marry this woman who's pregnant because she hasn't cheated on him. That's not why she's pregnant. Verse 22, all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And so Matthew understood that prophecy 700 years earlier was not only for the day of King Ahaz, but also for the day of Mary when she would give birth to this child in this most remarkable way. Now, let's go back to Luke 1, and I want to make a contrast here with, between Mary and Zechariah last week. Um, we looked at it earlier in verses. Verse 36. That's not the right verse. Verse 34. Mary asked the angel, How can this happen? I am a virgin. Now, again, she's a young woman, 12 years old, 13 years old, 14 years old. But Mary, um, again, thinking back to an agrarian society, they're not shielded from a lot of the things that young people are shielded from today. So she would have seen animals giving birth. Um, She would have seen animals breeding. Uh, She might well have helped her mother um, who was giving birth to younger siblings. Um, Mom wouldn't have been rushed off to the hospital. She would have given birth at home. And so Mary would have seen that. Mary's not clueless to any of this because she asks the angel, how will this happen? Because I am a virgin. She knows the fundamentals of life and conception and how children come about. Now, here's the contrast that I want to make. She asks the angel, how can this happen? Back to uh, earlier in the passage, Zechariah asks a different question. Verse 18, Luke 1:18. How can I be sure this will happen. And you remember what happened. God judged Zechariah for his unbelief, for his skepticism, uh, so that he couldn't speak and couldn't hear for the next nine months while his wife was pregnant before she gave birth to John. So the difference is he's saying, how can I be sure this is going to happen? Do you hear the skepticism in that? And she's just asking, how? How can it be? How will it happen? And by the end of this passage, she says, I am the Lord's servant. Again, you think about being asked to do this hard, hard thing with all the implications of the scandal that, that is going to happen. People are going to think what they're going to think and, you know, she, and what's going to happen with her relationship with Joseph. So many hard things. And she res- responds at the end of all this conversation with Gabriel, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. Now let's go back and ask this question. What was God thinking when he decided to go about having Jesus be born in this fashion? In other words, why not wait? Why not wait until Joseph and Mary were married? And that it would simply look like a, a normal birth. There would be no, oh. 
Why put Mary through this? Why put Joseph through this? Why put their parents through this? Why put Jesus through this? And we can tell as we read through the Gospels that this taint of scandal haunted Jesus even into his public ministry. Why? Let me have you turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Um, actually, what I'm going to have you do is look up at the screen if you do not have the NIV. And because uh, I'm going to read it out of the NLT first and then make a comparison to the NIV uh, because I think uh, the NLT did a disservice to its readers here. Everything they say is true, but they missed an emphasis. In the NLT it reads, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Now, the problem is the word Adam is not used in the original text. And so here's what it says in the NIV. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Now, what's the difference? The NLT focuses on a man named Adam, maybe as distinct from a man named Seth or a man named Jim or a man named Kevin. Whereas the NIV text and many other texts focus on the fact that Adam was a man and not a woman. Did you ever think about that when you read Genesis chapter 3 and Adam and Eve sinned, but really, if we put it in order, Eve and Adam sinned? Did you ever think about why in the world God continually focuses on, is, focuses on Adam? First thing they do, they're, they're looking for leaves to cover their private parts, and God, they go and hide, and God goes looking for them. But he calls for whom? Who does he call for, Eve or Adam? Adam, where are you? And then he confronts Adam and says, why, why, why are you hiding? I was naked. Oh, you realized you're naked. Hmm, how did you know that? Did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? Yeah, I did. But it was that woman you gave me. That told me to eat. So God goes looking for her. And she said, well, it was that snake you put in the garden that told me to eat. God goes looking for the snake. But now when he comes around and starts passing out judgments to the snake and the woman and the man, what does he say to the man? Because you listened to your wife. Now, ladies, don't get your hackles up here. If you're married and you have a, a good man, God has taught him to listen to you. He's a fool if he doesn't. But he's a fool if he listens to you every time. You see, God didn't hold, ultimately, God did not hold Eve responsible for the sin that then was passed on to humanity. He held Adam responsible. Why? Because he put Adam in the garden to shepherd everything. And this is what I tell you if you're a... Uh, a young couple that's engaged in getting, working, preparing to get married. Like, guys, you're, you're responsible to shepherd your family. 
He said, I'm the leader, I get to make decisions. No, you're the shepherd. That means you're responsible for God for the wisdom that occurs and the foolishness that occurs in your family. It's an inference, I know, but I take from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the first few verses, that those of us who are husbands and dads are gonna have to stand before God and give an account to God for our families one day because we're the ones responsible. We're the ones that God lays the, the blame on. So let's get back to the virgin birth and a Jesus that was born without the contribution of a male. Golden thread of the gospel. In order for Jesus to be able to make his march toward the cross and there to, having never sinned, die on the cross, not for his own sins, which death is our punishment for our own sins, in order for him to be able to die for your sins and for my sins, he had to be able to make it to the cross without ever having sinned even once. Or he would have been dying for his own sins. If he's going to do that, he cannot have a sin nature. If he has a sin nature, he's going to stumble. If it's true that the sin nature is in some mysterious way passed down through the man, can you now see how vital it was that a man was not involved in the conception. Let me take you to Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> chapter 2. It's one of my favorite passages. You, you hear me quote it from time to time, beginning of verse 6. speaks about Jesus. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, now, this is speaking about Jesus before he became a little baby. This is speaking about the eternal Son of God who has always existed. John chapter 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and we figure out later as we read down through that chapter that the Word is a euphemism for the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with, with God. Um, he created everything. Without him, nothing was created that is created, right? So... Jesus didn't have, so the Son of God did not have a beginning at Bethlehem. The human God-man, Jesus, had a beginning at Bethlehem, but, Jesus, uh, but the Son of God always existed, always existed. So before he became this baby, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. And he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. And therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor, gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. There's that kingship again, right? Every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me take you to one other passage yet. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. <clears throat> Hebrews 2, 14. Again, why, why couldn't Jesus just save us apart from God going through all of this stuff? Why couldn't he just save us? Why? Jesus appears in the skies and says, here I am, uh, you know, look to me or send me an email or something and you'll be saved. 
verse 14. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became, so there's understanding that he existed already, but he became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Now, by sending Christ to become a man, God lowered himself to man. And by trust, listen, for you, if you don't know Christ, you'd say, I'm not a Christian. You can be, and by trusting Christ, God raises you up to himself and gives you this privileged position. He gives you eternal life. He gives, he gives you an identity as a son or daughter of God. I mean, it's an amazing, amazing thing. A future with him, a forever but dignity beyond what you could possibly imagine. Now, in just a minute, I'm going to call up the worship team here, and we're going to get ready for um, communion. But I want to kind of set up communion with this final passage in John chapter 3. Because the astonishing birth of Jesus, I, I think, is the... Well, I think it just provides the pathway to this astonishing new birth that Jesus offers. If you remember the story in John chapter 3, a man by the name of Nicodemus came to Jesus at night one time. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at nighttime because they didn't want anybody to see. Um, a lot of people in the council that were critics of Jesus, and so he came and and he is, he's talking to Jesus, giving him a lot of flattery. You know, we know, you're, we know you're a servant of God. You don't worry about what other people think about you, what they say about you. We know you're, the, you're a good guy. Jesus interrupts him. And he says this, beginning of verse 3, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again. I mean, you talk about getting right to evangelism. Boom. I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, it, interesting, this idea of birth showing up again. You think about Jesus' own birth. And the man's absolutely bewildered. He says, what do you mean? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus says this, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. The water speaks about human birth and the spirit speaks about spiritual birth or new birth. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. Now, as I've been trying to encourage you this last half year as we celebrate the Lord's table, I hope that today, as we sing and as we receive the elements, that you're not thinking about, I'm not sure I'm worthy to take elements. I'm not sure I was good enough this week. I'm not sure that I have um, repented adequately of this or that. Listen, communion is for the unworthy. Communion is for the unworthy. Say that with me. Communion is for the unworthy. Listen, if you think you're worthy you have no business taking communion because you're a Pharisee. You're not banking on Jesus at all. You're banking on yourself. 
And so I hope when we sing this next song, uh, worship team, why don't you come on up a while? We're going to sing, Come As You Are. And, th- and then after that, while the elements are being passed out, we're going to sing, Jesus Paid It All. And just a reminder, it's not Jesus paid some of it. Jesus paid it all. I hope you sing with utter abandonment. I hope you raise the rafters in here and maybe even break something that we have to fix. That you would be so grateful for what Jesus has done for you. And if if you're not a a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, um, please don't take the elements. Just let them pass you by. Uh, This is not for you yet, and we don't mean to be exclude you unnecessarily but we need mean to exclude you necessarily because it's a family celebration the family of God if you're here from some other church we don't care about that you're if you're a believer you're part of our family family of God not Keystone family family of God those who follow Jesus Christ if you're not a Christian we pray that you'll give some thought during these moments to what Jesus did for you what did he do he died on a cross to save you from your sins He died for you to do for you what you could not do for yourself. I don't care how good you become. You could never become acceptable to God because his standard is perfection and nothing less. And that's the good news of Jesus. So as we sing this morning, let it loose. Would you stand? Let's sing together. Mm -hmm.